This is the Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity, because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing sing the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. Welcome to The Base Catholic. We have a jam-packed show for you full of segments and guests like the anti-woke sports guy John Root and New Paladies Mark Barnes. I'm going to talk with John about our corporations and monopolized sport leagues, being evangelists of the false religion of wokeness, and I'm going to argue that sports are not out of the domain of politics and subsequently religion. Then later on, I'm going to speak with Mark, who has very deep thoughts about technology to get his fun and brainy take on dating apps and social media influencing, which begs the question... Should we give technocratic elites that much power over the polity and the common good when it comes to relationship formation? Welcome back to the Call Her Tratty segment where I give my trad reaction to what's trending. Most sport fans just want sports to go back to being sports. They think the woke mob has politicized something that was supposedly neutral and brought people together. But I would argue it's not really possible for something to be totally neutral. For example, either Major League Baseball is going to play on Good Friday or they're not. Either decision is political. Either decision is religious. It wasn't the woke mob that had teams start playing on such a holy day over a quarter of a century ago. It was a growing irreligious society that stopped going to church and started wearing pajamas to games instead of suits. Now, most Americans think that's on us. And that's true. As an individual with a conscience and free will, you are a small fraction in a piece that determines whether a franchise stays in business. You're the one buying tickets and merchandise and tuning into the game. But as we've learned, we can't simultaneously boycott everything. If I stopped going to every store that contributed to something I don't believe in or stopped paying taxes to a government that funds things I don't believe in, I'd shop nowhere and be in jail. But are fans the only ones that hold the purse strings here? Do we really have the power to change anything, or are there other interests and players involved? We're living in a religious regime, as all regimes are naturally religious, but it's the wrong religion. We need a regime change. Now here's my interview with John Root. So we have John Root with us, the anti-woke sports guy, which I thought was just a perfect fit to have on a base show. And the reason I wanted to have you on was just because I really appreciated your coverage of the most recently offensive thing that has happened in sports. L.A. Dodgers reinviting the anti-Catholic group, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, for their Pride Night. I wanted your take on the whole thing, but I was wondering, do you think it's because they've made us so numb to seeing the gay pride flag everywhere that it almost takes something this overtly lewd and blasphemous to get us to react anymore? Well, in general, too, like, in, in our society and culture people have allowed god to be mocked like if this happened to if there was some sort of group against muhammad if it was some group against hindus or native americans or something like that you know people would be up in arms you'd have mainstream media that would be uh totally siding with these groups but if anything is 
against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's almost free game. And that's why I believe that our society looks a lot more like Babylon than it does Jerusalem. And I think we've fallen off the rails, and especially, too, when we see sports teams just bow down to the LGBTQ mob. And they bow down to the government sponsored now that we're seeing with what the Biden administration has done, uh, flying that new pride flag uh, on the people's house. Yes. It's it's a state sponsored uh, religion. It's it a state sponsored sex religion. And I think a lot of people have been desensitized. And I'm sure you are like me. When the Dodgers originally uninvited uh, the group that I like how people have started to call the Sisters of Perpetual Perversion. Mm. Uh, they, un- they uninvited them and I was shocked because I mean I've been around sports for a long time and I've seen the way that it shifted and when they uninvited them I was like wow this is incredible you have Christians and Catholics and conservatives and you know anti-woke Dodgers fans and sports fans that are speaking out against this and the Dodgers made the right decision and then what happened is they cowered so from there it's just you, you got to see that the Dodgers decided it's in our best interest to allow this group and let the mob dictate how we go about who we invite, when we invite, and what we promote. But I think it's it's all teams. I mean, I'm from Cleveland, and I've even noticed that it's not just Pride Night. It's Pride Month. I mean, the entire month of June, they changed the team's logo to fit the pride colors of the flag, which you pointed out in your speech at the Catholics for Catholics protest outside Dodger Stadium that I believe it was a member of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence actually made this flag. So it's not yeah. it's not even just like a, a flag that represents a bad anthropology. Like I actually look at it now a lot differently as a flag that's openly hostile to my faith. Yeah. So Gilbert Baker's the unfortunately I forgot the name when I was doing the speech. And I'm still so thankful that I was able to be a part of that protest and then um, be able to work with people on the Catholic side. And I was working more on the Protestant side. We were able to come together and really fight back against this just evil decision by the Dodgers. And I believe it was really God honoring to see so many people come together and people have to remember the history of these things. They take symbolism that we hold so dear in our faiths and the rainbow. Unfortunately, now when people see the rainbow, they think gay pride. They don't think the promise that God made to us to say, I will never flood the earth again. I will never do anything like this again, even though, you know, the way our world looks right right now, we deserve it. Uh, but someone like Gilbert Baker, he was good friends with Harvey Milk, obviously really pushed a lot of gay pride in the San Francisco area. And he was the original creator of the pride flag. And he was one of the original members of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I mean, this stuff runs really, really deep. Everybody didn't really know where that, you know, strip tease with people dressing up as Jesus came from. It was from a hunky Jesus Easter service. And and that's the unfortunate thing. We do get outraged and we get outraged about the right things, but we need to start doing a little bit more research in, you know, you'll find out about things like Gilbert Baker. You'll find out where the Sister of Professional Indulgence came from. You'll find out that this wasn't just some one-off event that they had. This was a event put on to mock Jesus Christ. And it's not humorous. They think it's, they think it's humor. They think, they think it's satire. And we know that Galatians 6-7, I, I wore a, a sweatshirt 
that I wrote on there, Galatians 6, 7, our God will not be mocked. And it's up to us um, to push back against these things. And we know our God is greater, our God is mightier than anything that this group will do. But we got to stop cowering. We got to stop acting like uh, meekness equals weakness. We, we need to step up and give people the truth. And I think at the same time, too, I wanted to make sure that there was a prayer for the group of the Sisters of Professional Indulgence. There was a prayer for everybody at the Dodgers organization. There needs to be prayer for people like um, Clayton Kershaw, that he started, he's bringing back the Christian and Faith and Family Night, but he wore a Dodgers rainbow hat. Like we have to pray for these people that they stay strong, pray for repentance from this uh, just anti-Jesus Christ group. And I think from there, hopefully uh, these hearts of stone uh, just get softened a little bit and we can see, you know, the revival that so many people are talking about. But I think it starts with repentance. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up um, what I call liturgical liberalism, which is liberalism. I mean, it's inherently always going to mock Christianity and especially Catholicism. I mean, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, it's even a play on on words in Catholicism. But kind of from a macro level, I wanted to look at what's going on in the sports culture because you know, I remember the days of like no homo and now it is just global <laughs> homo. I mean, everything is gay. And I think a lot of people are surprised that this social conditioning is finding traction at all in the sports world. I wanted to get your take on why that is. I remember when I was interning because uh, I, I was born in the San Francisco Bay Area and then I moved there after I was done with college. But I also had an internship at NBC Sports Bay Area. And there was some ad campaigns about like, stop saying the word gay, stop using like no homo and things like that. Like I used to say that with <laughs> sports teams all the time. Like um, it's like good game. You slap your boy on the butt. It's like no homo. <laughs> that stuff was funny, but it, it started to turn into, they use sports as the driver against uh, ant, quote unquote, just anti-gay um, rhetoric and talk and it turned into these are just these are words you can't say anymore um, and uh, that's that's where you know we don't have any sort of light-hearted talk like that anymore um, and everything is taken way too serious and I know something I shared uh, this year too is uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the Orioles the Orioles had a, a pride night and they were educating everybody on pronouns and the LGBTQ community and trans rights and all this nonsense. And I ended up quote tweeting and saying, like, what if teams and leagues use their platform to promote the truth about Jesus Christ? Yeah. We'd be in a much better society. And everyone's just like, oh, I can't believe you'd say that. Why are you pushing your beliefs? It's like, what do you think they're doing? <laughs> they're literally pushing their beliefs. Yeah. And indoctrinating people into becoming allies because so many people just miss the fact of like, oh, why are we catering to just a small minority of people? No, they're catering to the allies. Yeah, There is a growing number of allies and people are becoming unbelievably militant with the LGBTQ community because they've been indoctrinated to believe that Republicans or anybody religious of the sort is trying to exterminate like you'll hear people like michael mose he's trying to eradicate transgenderism he's not trying to exterminate transgenders he's trying to eradicate transgenderism 
but they take those things and they run with it. And they're like, look, these people over here, they want to kill us. And then they'll totally stay silent when they see a shooting uh, in Nashville where you have a trans kid that purposely attacks Christians and a Christian school. It's it's insane. Uh, so we just celebrated the fourth. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about the founders, because I know us Catholics maybe have a nuanced opinion of the revolution. Uh, if you read the litany of what these men personally sacrificed and put on the line for the conviction they had, it makes every one of us look like cowards so committed to comfort. At what point, if any, do you think Catholic or Christian players will walk away from the game for a higher love? So like, say we're not playing sports anymore and we're going to well, be kind of... Like, like I was just thinking about it. It's like if, if I'm a committed Catholic player and my team decides to do something like what the LA Dodgers did, at what point are players actually going to walk away and say, you know what, if this franchise, if this organization doesn't respect my faith and my beliefs, that means they don't respect me. I'm going to leave. I'm going to walk away. Like at what point are people actually just going to say I'm out? Because, you know, like when I was reading through the litany of what the founders sacrificed personally for their conviction, I was just like, nobody in modern society would do any of this for any belief, not even their belief in God. Yeah. And I think that's why we see way too many cowardly men that. I mean, like, what was your reaction to like the backlash that was going on in, in the sports world? I mean, I know there was a couple players that, you know, said something, but were you impressed? Like, was it enough? You think? No, because what did we need is we needed Clayton Kershaw to make a stand. And in general, too, like this is not a full indictment on Clayton Kershaw and his family or anything like that. Like, but my goodness, like if God presents you an opportunity to stand firm um, in his word and on the courage of your conviction, do it. Yeah. He looked exactly like every other player at that game. He wore the pride nonsense. Um, he didn't say anything uh, really derogatory to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Like, this is your time. And then the worst thing, too, is you have Dave Roberts, the manager of the L.A. Dodgers, that says he's a Christian. He wished everybody through the media – a happy pride month and a happy pride night. Like this stuff is ridiculous and we're not going to see any sort of progress if we have men continue to cower when the fight is at your doorstep. And that's, that's the only way I see uh, real progress happen. Uh, the most courageous player we've probably seen recently with all the social justice nonsense and woke crap, just infiltrating sports is Jonathan Isaac. Yeah. And uh, when he was in the NBA bubble and he was the only player to stand for the national anthem, how we're going to make a way forward is when athletes finally stand up and it needs to be prominent athletes. Yeah. Um, and that's why I was so disappointed. And that's why I will not go to the faith and family night at, at Dodger stadium because I wanted to see how Clayton Kershaw was going to react. He doesn't need to go out and just absolutely blast the LGBTQ community and, uh, and everything, but he can go out there and say, I will not wear this rainbow pride stuff because it's a slap in the face to our God. It's in diabolical opposition to my faith. And I am against this group that mocks my Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. But 
for some reason they decide that you know it, it's better to just kind of sit back i won't say much hopefully faith and family and, I, and another thing i know i'm just rambling here but the final thing here is yes he brought back Christian faith and family night, but it's not involved in the game at all. It's literally just a plaster there. It's like, great. If you want to stick after the game, stick around after the game, we'll have like maybe a little worship and then we might have a talk. Like it's so disrespectful that it's like, great, we have this, but you know, if you want to stick around after the game. Yeah. Do you see uh, how they sure. make it? They make it an option if it's Christian, but if it's yeah. pro LGBTQ, it is in your face. You're force fed it. Yeah. We have two. We have a gay married couple, two men that have rented wombs from women and bought kids and they're throwing out the first pitch. Yeah. Like if you consider yourself a Christian, a Catholic person of faith, that is against what you believe. And what's the best way to love people is to give them the truth. You know, we're not, again, we're not asking Clayton Kershaw or Dave Roberts to just crap on these people. But like, these are things that I started seeing towards the tail end of my tenure working for the San Jose Sharks as a host and reporter. I mean, they started openly celebrating kids coming out as the other biological sex, which is just patentedly untrue and impossible. So we need players to stand up and say, I love these people enough to give them the truth. And I will not fall in line and look like the world because we're supposed to be set apart. One of my favorite Catholic athletes who I think has a lot of class is Harrison Bucker. And I think yes. I think the difference between players like that is that he's fearless. He knows that God gave him these gifts and God can take them away. He's using his platform specifically to honor God. Like he doesn't care enough about his position. And I think that's the issue is when your idol in your life is is being a pitcher or being a pro athlete, and that's the highest love in your life, then you're going to worship at that altar no matter what the cost. But I think when you have a higher love everything falls to that altar. And I think that's the difference is like, you're more fearless when you don't care that much. Yeah. And it's been a huge blessing getting to know Harrison and his manager, Austin, uh, the basic Catholic. I'll give him a little oh, shout yeah. out. Um, <laughs> and I mean, they're just, I wanted to get both. Harrison on, but his PR people told me no. So, <laughs> but I, it's Harrison is, he's just a fantastic guy and he surrounds himself with really good people and he acts upon the courage of his convictions and like what he did at the white house and he wore this pro-life tie and he also had a pro-life pin and his tie said oh i i'm gonna absolutely actually i'm not even gonna i couldn't actually it. make it out <laughs> i wanted it to be more overt because i couldn't zoom in enough to read it yeah it's i'm not even gonna try to speak latin here but it basically <laughs> was translating to protect the most vulnerable and he also wore a gold pin, the exact exact size of a 10-week-old preborn baby's foot. Love it. And he he takes this podium and he's using it for just an amazing cause. And he's a well-spoken, way better looking guy than I could ever imagine myself <laughs> being. All guys look to him and are like, wow, this guy's an absolute stud. He dresses <laughs> so nice. Uh, but he's just he's an awesome father. Uh, he's a great husband, and he's I mean, all his teammates just speak so highly of him, too. I know I was it was cool to get to meet uh, some of his teammates over the last few years. And he is a very bold, very courageous, really strong man who takes the platform that God has graciously given him 
and uh, just tries to educate people on the truth. And it's it's very inspiring. And I'm, I'm thankful to definitely call him a friend. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I, it was so funny because during the Super Bowl, that was the time. Do you remember when the FBI had a basically like a most wanted list and it was traditional Catholics? And I was just laughing because I was like, the guy who just won the Super Bowl is on the FBI list because he serves at Latin Mass. I mean, could not get more trad, I'm sure. So I was just, I thought it was hysterical. I was like, this is where we're at in America. Yeah, when I look at Harrison, I think, wow, what a dangerous, dangerous, evil man. Like, <laughs> but, I he, just... but he is dangerous. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, though. It's like that does make you dangerous to the state. Yeah, and that's the thing that's like, we need more people that are just bold. Uh, in the truth and then especially to the the whole especially abortion we're now seeing leagues like the nba came out and they said we will help pay for employees who want to go get abortions if they need to get abortions out of state or whatever travel they may do you have someone like harrison bucker said no like every like life begins at conception when the egg meets the sperm it's a special uh dna that is created a life is created and we are made in the image of God and we have dignity and we have worth and to see an athlete step up like Harrison, it's just so refreshing to see. And it's, it's such a bummer because you also have people like Steph Curry who claims to be a Christian and says he doesn't really know how he feels about abortion. That was in a Rolling Stone episode, but he promotes democratic politicians or Democrat politicians like Stacey Abrams that think whatever heartbeat that you're hearing at the doctor's office is some fabricated uh, noise based in white supremacy. It's like the hoops that they jump through um, <laughs> and how weak athletes have been. It's refreshing to see more people, uh, see people like Harrison. I wish we saw more athletes like that. I do too, but I appreciate your boldness and talking with us today. Thank you so much for coming on, John. Thanks so much for having me. of the population is undateable. Undateable! (laughs) This is the Undateable segment where we discuss what the heck is going on in the modern dating scene. Welcome back to The Base Catholic. I'm your host, Jessica Kramer, and we're switching gears to discuss an aspect of the technological takeover, dating apps and social media influencing. So for any of you on the apps or those wanting to be a social media influencer, this one is very thought-provoking. My interview with Mark Barnes raised an interesting point. We shouldn't ask the question, could good come from this? As he notes, the Catholic position is that good could come from anything. But rather, we need to ask, is this particular thing, whatever it is, good? And is the necessary destruction of how it was done before this technological advancement good? Dating apps were created because of an already deceased dating culture. I'm personally more interested in getting back to a healthy dating culture rather than trying to meet a healthy person on an app. I also think that there are some mantras that we learned when we were five that we should keep. One being stranger danger. Dating apps are weird. They're a personal ad that a stranger is answering. What are you, nuts? (laughs) This is an invitation to get murdered. Now, are there people out there who your people may know that you come across? Absolutely. But you still don't know them. And most of the time, you don't know them from Adam. You don't know anybody that does know them. 
right there, there is zero fun in that. It is always better to meet someone naturally in person. The second mantra that we learned that I think we need to take to heart is your mother's always right. I would love to meet moms who are fans of dating apps. I'm convinced they don't exist. So like the relationship guru I am, I'm going to give the same advice I gave to a random middle-aged man I came across recently. Get off the apps. Meet someone in person. Find someone in your particular place. In our interview, Mark Barnes suggested dancing as a way to lose how you intentionally present yourself as a way to reveal yourself. If you don't want to do old school dancing, go country line dancing. Join an adult sports league. Form a trivia team. Do speed dating and then never do it again. Go to events. Go to a lecture. Form a book club or a discussion group. Hold a game night. Host a dinner party. Plan trips to go hiking or camping with friends and meet people through them. Go to church. And if you give me the same response that this guy did, what, and just pick a religion? I'm going to look at you and say, don't be so lazy. Ask the big questions in life, like, what is objective and absolute truth? Find God and then find a girl. My hot take is that apps are for lazy men or evidence that a lot of men have just gotten lazy. The men who reportedly match with a lot of women could probably approach a woman in person, but they'd rather hide behind the screen and receive the affirmation and validation that it offers. So they effeminately let the women flock to them and put in minimal effort. The men who don't match with women probably have 10 times better odds to win over the affections of a woman in person. And women don't want to be there. Here are their experiences. Well, first of all, I just find it very tedious. Like trying to present yourself online is just too much for me because trying to get the right pictures, trying to speak about yourself in such a way that's going to capture someone's attention, but also be truthful and natural and not ridiculous. So I guess that always turned me off as part of the work involved in doing it. It's a resume. You put your resume out there. It's a picture and some highlights. I'm the person who needs to see you as a whole person and get a vibe, um, whether we connect. Um, because I can prejudge people based on pictures or how they present themselves. And I know that's not fair because maybe I don't present myself very well and I feel like I have a lot to give to someone. So it's not fair for me to judge people, but I do. Like I just have like the way people write. So like their grammar, like that matters to me. Pictures, like if it's a bad looking picture, but it's only capturing one aspect of that person. And like there's bad pictures of me, like I'm not photogenic all the time. So I feel like using a dating app, like it just doesn't give the whole person and it doesn't give them the benefit of the doubt. I tend to think when you're swiping right or left, you are turning people into a commodity. That was my experience um, with online dating. It felt kind of like I didn't want to turn people into commodity, so I wanted to give people dignity or time. I feel if I went into that... I would have to give them the benefit of the doubt. But then I just don't want to be like opening Pandora's box and just like, well, then everybody I should like 
talk to or like where do you draw the line? I think meeting people naturally in person is the better way uh, instead of meeting them on dating apps. I just think that you have to fully be yourself when you meet them in person and it's more organic and it leads to basically less of a way for the other person to be deceitful and not show their true colors. And you also don't have the facade of the person, whereas on dating apps, until you really meet the person, you're just talking to a fake person, right? Because the idea that they're giving you of themselves over the phone or over text is fake. Until you physically are with them in person, and you're building a fake relationship. And after my experiences with dating apps, uh, I've gotten, I think, a little bit screwed over by this idea of the person and then meeting them and being like, hmm. Uh, and I've partook, I've, I've partook in that. I'm not saying that that person screwed me over solely, but I just think that if you're going to do a dating app, do not waste your time texting or talking to that person on the phone. Like literally meet the person. And if you don't meet the person within like a week or two of talking to them, then don't waste your time because you can meet them in person and be like, hmm. But also it's going to take you so much more time to get to know that person and if they're long distance, right? But if you're meeting this person naturally um, and you meet them at church or you meet them at work or somewhere that you frequent, um, I just think that it's there's a way better chance for success. I would say that largely the fruit has been rotten. Most of the fruit has been bad. Men have been left feeling like women don't like them because they get ghosted all the time. Women have felt like... Um, you know, can feel commodified in a lot of ways. So it's kind of a lose-lose. I met my husband on eHarmony in 2016. Before that, I had been on and off dating apps for five years, whether it was OkCupid, Bumble, Plenty of Fish, any of the free sites. I found them depressing, at times disgusting, and definitely lacking in quality candidates. I don't know if online dating is what killed dating culture or if dating culture was already dying until people resorted to online dating. And I think that has more to do with people's addictions to the internet, screen time, all that stuff in which we are more and more isolated and so people don't know how to interact in person uh, anymore. So I think we've gone into online dating and these apps because it's a necessity rather than a desire. I'm Krames, and this is my corner. But in all seriousness, trust your gut. If you feel this sinking, gross feeling every time you open the app, that's probably the Holy Spirit telling you to delete it. God leads us by desire. Obviously, those desires need to be purified and good to follow. But if you feel like you don't have the desire to use the app to find your spouse, and you're just doing it because you feel like you should, that's letting yourself be led by fear and not faith. Fear that you won't meet someone else some other way, fear that you need to meet them now and make something happen, fear that God is not orchestrating your love story or your life. While God uses us, we are secondary causes. If you're doing it to take control, then it's probably not God leading you to use the dating app. It's probably you trying to will something that isn't God's will through the dating app. And now I present you my interview with the brilliant Mark Barnes. I absolutely loved your Pints with Aquinas 
interview on technology. Oh, thank you. I was pausing it and I was like, yes, this is exactly what I've been thinking. I mean, cause like all my friends, they know I rant about technology all the time. And so I kind of wanted to get your take on dating apps because I know it sounds trite at first, okay. you know, it's like, who cares, but it's monopolized a market that is yep. really important for the formation of continued life in society. Yep. And yeah. the technology aspect, I was just thinking, you know, you're a deep thinker. I'm like, you've probably thought about this in various ways. So on, on the initial reaction, I hate them. So <laughs> yeah. That. But there's this difficulty that comes with living within a sort of technocratic slave state is that obviously everything serves a purpose given a prior destruction of the world. So you can mm. think about this with cars, you know, it's like there is nothing about making cars the norm of human transportation that was good for human flourishing and happiness. It's like children live next to deadly spaces. Um, everything integral within a community is spread out to various strip malls. We create dead spaces, we create waste, we create... Um, like it's inimical to community and friendship, which are the origins or the, the foundation of politics. Okay. But that being said, given that the car has destroyed the world in this way, then you need a car to get other goods. Um, and so there's no point in saying, well, I'm against cars, so I'm going to not take my friend to the grocery store here. That, that's what I hate the most. I mean, even with smartphones, yeah. you know, you go to a store, I'm asking for coupons. You got to have an app for every single store. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I mean, like, what if what if I wanted to opt out of this? What if I wanted a flip phone and I didn't want to participate? Am I just excluded from everything in society? I mean, they make it so that you have to. And I hate yeah. that the most. Yeah, no, I mean, the technology always forms us into the habit of its use. Yeah. It includes a social habit. Um, and so it's not sufficient to argue as people who are very pro-technology argue that it's simply a tool, that it's all about how you use it. Because what the widespread use of any particular tool does is habituates a people to a certain way of life that excludes other ways. I mean, try asking anyone for directions these days. Yeah. I mean, it's just there is a habit of navigation that's simply not available to people anymore. Um, and that wasn't like a political choice in the sense of we all deliberated on, you know, what sacrifices to make for this convenience. It was the active marketing and selling of a new habitual way of being over and against an old habitual way of being. Um, so wherever you see technological progression, you're also looking at um, the capturing of a market. Yeah, like the monetizing of a new sphere of human existence. So now what was done for free is now done for a certain cost. And this is how this is what offends me about the dating apps. It's not in their totalitarian nature, because obviously the whole selling point of them is not that they replace dating, but that they enable it. Right. Yeah. But this shouldn't surprise us. This is how it, this is the only way to sell a technology right, is to say, this will improve your navigation, this will improve your transportation, this will improve your communication, right, and this will improve dating, um, or it will enable it in some way, will serve it. Um, but it seems obvious that what happens through the widespread use of dating apps is uh, the creation of a generation of people who are habituated to certain 
ways of looking at romance and flirtation and dating that are mediated through that that form of use. So one obvious instance is just the perception of um, identities as a prerequisite for dating. I haven't dated anyone in a while because I married someone. So <laughs> one I, I, of the things I mean, I don't want to I don't want to distract from your comment, but I feel like yeah. your how you met her story would be kind of fascinating. But first remember really speaking to her because we'd both been flunked out of a class at uh, Franciscan <laughs> University. And I was like, whatever, I don't care. And she was like, please, please don't fail me. Give me a D to this, you know, professor. And so I, I disdained her for her groveling. And she thought I was prideful and vain. So we didn't like each other. <laughs> Not just because of that. There were other things. But then we started uh, seeing each other a lot after university and um, playing music together. So she has a beautiful voice. My, my wife, Laura, has a beautiful voice. And so the relationship sort of grew naturally out of concerts and shows and parties that we would play music at, things like that. This sort of habitual use of dating apps seems to it inaugurates this this view of the human person where you're looking at what the way they present themselves is primary. Yeah. And this is all social media, right? Is that you have unique in human history, the ability to decide how you will be presented, right? The whole use of pronouns to define gender, or not to define, but to express gender, is something that's both available to and necessary for the kind of gender ideology we have, right? Which is to say, if gender is in truth just something that I decide, I identify within myself, then actually no one knows me apart from self-identification, right? So you have to like creepily, I mean, if you took the gender theory, uh, the sort of identity theory um, consistently, which no one does, then you would you wouldn't even speak to anyone as being a man or a woman until you'd heard them identify themselves in conversation. So it necessitates being creepy. Uh, because you have to kind of like wait for a revelation of, of gender and then. And so social media in relation to our gender ideology is, has a certain salvific role. It, it makes it possible for the first time because the way that we encounter people is through their identification of themselves. Yeah. So pronouns in the bio is a necessity. It used to be a kind of, um, a kind of uh, augmentation, as it were, of like self-expression, but now it is is just the only way to know. Um, and so there's this core, there's this relationship between um, gender identity theory and then our use of social media that's they feed into each other, right? Like I need to meet people insofar as they identify themselves in a certain way in order to meet them truly, because my very anthropology now is that people are what they identify as. Okay, well, with dating, it seems like a similar thing is happening where people are being seen in their self-presentation. And this is allowing us to make to make choices on the basis of what people say about themselves. But it's always seemed to me that it's precisely what people don't say about themselves that mm. is most intriguing mm. and most and most helpful in determining whether someone would be uh, suitable for marriage because marriage is willfully entering into a situation in which that person is constantly revealing themselves whether they would or not. Um, and this is why for all of all of history, the way that dating or courting would occur was often through dancing. Through, because in dancing, you actually 
lose some of the uh, sort of deliberate presentation of the self. Like, I am six feet tall. I have brown hair. I am interested in this and that. And you get involved in a movement in which the body, your own body and your own person speaks itself in ways that you're not fully in control of. You're moving to the rhythm, you're dancing. Um, and that's always seemed to be very like highly romantic, right? Is like to seek out, um, seek out places and ways in which the person reveals him or herself in their acts without any kind of deliberative sort of um, resume of, of identity as it were. And so it seems like we're, we'd be simultaneous with the habitual use of dating apps is like a fear of um, romance as it occurs through things like surprise, things like um, things like dance, things like um, meeting people in conversations where you don't have this, the expectation, expectation, as it were, of, of self-revelation for the sake of seeing if, if it's a fit, as it were. Um, I don't know if that all makes sense, but that's sort of my... No, I, I agree with that. That's highly unromantic. Now, of course, everyone knows this, right? So no one who's like using dating apps is like, this is the way of the future. This is the best. You that, know? That's the thing is that, you know, my friends are always saying like, there'll be comments on people's profiles about how much they hate using this app. So I'm yeah, like, okay, no one wants to be on here, but they all feel obligated because I think it goes to your point. We don't, we're not a dancing culture. We've mm. lost those third spaces that mm. um, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. has been referenced with that, that um, book bowling alone. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you, you've lost like this community atmosphere. So it's like, besides work, people are online <laughs> and this is just, yeah, totally monopolized the market. So people don't want to be there, but they feel like they have to be there, which I think is the saddest thing because people aren't even there by desire. And then that that kind of perpetuates nothing happening. So everyone's just staying on the app, which is exactly what the app wants you to do. So it just seems yeah, the, very yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot going on there. I mean, when dating becomes profitable to people that aren't involved, kind of seems like prostitution. Uh, yeah, of part of romance. But when you're saying things like "Oh, I really hate it here. I hate that it has to happen," it's just very interesting because that is its own kind of delight is the express like gaining solidarity through expressing distaste of the place that you're in i mean like mm. what makes people in an office happiest well it's bitching about something together like that's the yeah that's the social coherent moment and so it's interesting because i just think that within dating apps that the dislike of dating apps is in fact a way of seeking like concord and community in, in the same way that it is with social media i mean it's all social media is like this where people are like i hate being on here everyone's so fake or whatever but that experience of something being necessary like well there's really not another way for me to meet young people my age or something like that um that experience of, necess of necessity should lead us to destroy the structures of sin that make something that's so obviously not a good into a necessity and this is where i think there's a certain there's a certain lack in i don't know if it's just a lack of virtue or it's just a feeling of paralysis that's sort of endemic but it's like if you're sitting there thinking wow there's just no way for me to meet friends except for to either be online or to like drive somewhere really far away, then you are 
primed for radical politics. Like, okay, so <laughs> what kind of things need to be destroyed so that these necessities are necessary? Um, and in Steubenville, this is very like, it's a, it's a place where power has its efficacy in the sense that we don't simply have to sit and think like, okay, we're just sort of slaves within a technocratic regime that kind of forces us this way and that. But yeah, we can host weekly dances. Um, we can all learn ballroom dancing and swing dancing. We can, um, if we're sick of cars, we can politically organize with enough feasibility to block off pedestrian streets, um, whether for a time or permanently. Like we can, we can make decisions about technology. Granted, they're limited, right? Like there's, there's, you know, no one is so powerful as to be able to undo the kind of accumulated, um, profitable decisions of of like hundreds of years of corporate power, but um, there's a lot you can do. And it's why I always encourage people to move to places where their power is efficacious. Mm. Like don't, yeah. don't, I, that can be a physical move or it can be going offline. Right. But like, why do we sit within places where we know that the gifts that we have have to be translated into forms and modes of living that we hate? in order to get anything done. So, well, that should be your encouragement, like your invitation to do something radically different. Um, and I don't know how to make that pitch to people besides just to say that. <laughs> I mean, I struggle with this with social media because being in media, you have this obligation to have a presence online. Yeah. So I feel like I have to do it, but I don't it, want to. Yeah, weird though, right? Because it's like... Un- you're right. So journalists have to be online now to establish themselves because in truth, Twitter and such is our major media outlet. But yeah. that means that your social presence online isn't so much serving your journalistic work. Like you could describe it that way. Sure. But it's also the case that the entire social order is becoming more journalistic. So what I mean to say is at some point, what the journalists are I don't know if you've noticed this, but like there's a lot of, there's a new breed of article out there, which I can't stand. What is it? It's basically like a, here's what happened on Twitter article. And it's like some journalist who read some conversations between people happening on Twitter, or I guess it could be on Facebook. I just usually see Twitter. And then they like screenshot it and that's their article. It's like, Oh, that the, like this is the public debate now. Yeah, kind this of. is the article. Yeah. It's on some other. It's you know, it's on some other site. And what's obvious, like the the thing, the question is, of course, well, why am I reading your article if, like, what service are you providing as a journalist? If you know, are you just curating curating the content of social media? And in truth, they are because what's what's really happening is that our capacity for communication, for belief, for the conveyance of thought and truth. Um, is increasingly been monetized in the forms of social media. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a good way out of that um, besides to to really get off. Generally speaking, people have to conform to the to what is successful online in order to succeed as any kind of media presence. Yeah. But that form of what is successful is often inimical to the truth. And so you end up trying to um, 
kind of convey the truth within a form that's constantly clawing at you to to start lying or to you know do it in a way that's um aggrandized self-aggrandizing or kind of adds to a personal presence of having you know power over other people through your wit or or know-how or something like that it just seems like there's a uh, like we're all being rewarded for very aggressive and and weaponized and dumb modes of communicating with each other and that at some point that we push that far enough and then we're not actually able to understand journalism anymore we're just journalism becomes social media yeah it starts as trying to use social media yeah no i mean i I mean i miss the days of print journalism i miss you know a soapbox i miss just personal interaction being in the same room with people um yeah that's that's been the tension of you know as catholics should we enter into these spheres to try to influence them Mm. um there's been i mean i know that you're not going to know about this because you're off social media but there has been kind of like on instagram this whole uh debate among young catholics on whether or not catholics should be influencers so I wanted, yeah. I mean, Can I kind define, of know where you're going to influencer. So yeah. an influencer is basically someone with a really large following. Typically, this is most commonly used in, on Instagram, someone yeah, who's right. just got like, you know, 30,000 people constantly watching oh, what they're doing. But I guess what I'm asking, does it imply selling them things or is this just incidental it, that they sell things? It can. Okay. So that's it's been part essential. of the debate. It's not essential. I mean, you could honestly just find someone interesting and just watch yeah. them constantly. So the debate has been obviously like, their influence on selling you products, but also just like our obsessive nature of like caring about minute details of another person that is oh, showing yeah. it to the entire world. Um, now, granted, some good could come from it potentially. If they're a person of faith, they could share their faith through that platform. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been a debate. So I, I, I'm kind of thinking I know where you're going to land, but I'm yeah. curious to see what you actually have to say. Well, I, I just point out the argument that something should be done because some good f- can come from it. I've always found a little baffling because it's the Catholic position that there's nothing you can do that good can't come from it. The fall of man wasn't so bad that good couldn't come from it. The fall yeah. of Satan himself. I mean, like we're, we're talking about the continued presence of the good within structures of wickedness that are trying to extract those goods for money. So the fact that you're saying the good is still present is simply the point that the people who made the technologies began with, which is like, how do we use all of these goods that are present in such a way that they become profitable to us? So uh, there's no argument that, of course, a Christian can't share his or her conversion story. Um, the argument is is simply that in in sharing the conversion story in social media and is that and that being a, a form of life is to share it in such a way that people who hate you profit. Like the the sum total of Christians becoming influencers is that more Christians profit people who hate Christians, namely the creators of and maintainers of our various social media empires. So my concern is always, how do I behave in such a way that I don't profit my enemies? And it seems mm. like so often our concern is is something more to the effect of like, yeah, how can I simply do what good is available to me within an obviously wicked structure? It got kind of back to what we're saying, which is like, well, why not? Why not be more radical than that? I mean, do we do we really have to be so like realistic and political um, in in the 
sense of just like pragmatically assenting to every structure of modernity just because we don't have the imagination to conceive of another way of evangelizing or another way of um another way of attaining the basic goods um that have always been possible for humanity like dating of course so um so no i don't think um Catholics should be influencers because the very mode of being an influencer is vicious and not virtuous, even if you stuff it with Christian content. Mm. Like what it means to constantly film yourself. Maybe one way to put it is this. Say that we're a society of saints. We did it. Everybody's a saint. This is awesome. Who's the influencer? Like like who, who's making the social media platforms and whose decision is it to to be an influencer where they show like, you know, I don't know what they're cooking to all the rest of the things. I mean, it seems absurd on the face mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. That St. Anthony would be like, I just have an obsessive follower, you know, and I, <laughs> and I think it's great that he's watching me like brush my teeth and talk about my skin care uh, regimen or something. <laughs> um, but why is that ridiculous? Well, it's ridiculous because part of, of holiness and part of, of sanctity is that we increasingly unite within friendships where we're not using each other but it's obvious that the only thing that makes an influencer a valid like essentially role within society is insofar as they can successfully use other people's social media addictions and obsessions and anxieties for their own benefit but at that point that's just tyranny i mean that's just like you're 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 not a friend to 30,000 people. And if you're yeah. not a friend, then what are you? Okay. You know? So do you think that there's anything inherently wrong with, with putting content out into the world versus making the focal point, yeah. you, your personality? Is there a difference? Yeah, no, I, I totally think there is. I mean, okay. in the sense I was going to say, I hope you're not like criticizing anyone who writes or anyone who, you know, produces oh, podcasts or, well, no, you I, know, I, video. I think maybe the temptation is always there, right? I can conceive of writing in a way where, where my concern for the truth or for the holiness of other people who I'm supposed to be serving gets perverted. And those things while remaining become means to a, a, a further end, which is a simply a mass of followers a mass of attention a certain pleasing sense of uh, a potential power that's never actually instantiated in particular friendships um so i'm not saying like that there isn't some way in which this could be possible um prior to to social media but it's obvious that social media rewards it yeah and that it actually because what what is the goal of the program the goal of the program at the end of the day is to get as many people seeing as many ads as possible. So it's very hard to get them to look at ads except for by utilizing because looking at ads is horrible and everyone hates it. So especially because they're not beautiful like they used to be. No, 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 no. They're 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 not even lengthy descriptions of products. It's just a lot of propaganda. But you have to utilize something that is good in order to get people to do something that, you know, is not good. And what they're utilizing right now is um, friendship. So Mm. you believe that the person you're following is your friend and maybe even refers to you as that. And through that, you're manipulated into watching more ads basically. 
So I don't know. It just doesn't seem like there's a lot that's redeeming about it. Again, like it's not that I'm arguing that no good can come out of it. It's that I'm arguing that the fact that good can come out of it is the condition of its existence. So the question mm. is, well, now what do we do? Given that yeah. the goods that we usually attain are now only being in a, attained in a manner that profits people who um, hate the church. Seems, it seems like an odd state of affairs just to acquiesce to. Maybe I'm being too radical. <laughs> no, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate you being extreme. I like the word extreme. I was thinking about the word extreme because uh, it means like a furthest point from a center, right? Yeah. Um, we can talk about our extremities, like our hands and our feet and how beautiful it is for the Christian to be an extremist, right? Because there's all of this language within the um, church that says that the laity especially are the hands and feet of Christ. That is, we are the extremity of Christ. The, the core of our Christianity that kind of center of encounter with God and faith in Christ um, leads us to be extremists, like etymologically. Of course, we go out to the furthest possible reach from the center. That's just what the cross, that's what the image of the cross is, is something going to its extremes, God going to the extreme. And so it's just never, um, I think we should be worried about not being extremists in that sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> of like, oh, I'm really holding this one close to the chest. I'm not actually living out, you know, the full logic of, of this particular belief I have or this particular encounter I've had. I'm Jessica Kramer. This has been The Base Catholic. Be sure to tune in next week and subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify and my YouTube channel. Animal Base! If you're like Aria and need more based Make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.